Beautifully. Beautiful. Oh, beautiful. Uh, we're heading back to Romans chapter 4. A week ago we were recollecting, we were celebrating the resurrection of our Savior from the dead last week. Really had a, a great week with you guys last week. Thinking about Jonah as a as a type of a man who ended up dying in his sin and raised to new life and the service of God. It's a really uh, great meditation and study in Jonah last week. The resurrection is the vindication of the gospel. <clears throat> I hope that high on your list of things as you think about what the gospel is and how to explain the gospel to somebody and even your own standing in the gospel is so contingent on the veracity of the resurrection. Part of our our sharing the gospel with somebody needs to always come with uh, a statement of the resurrection of Christ from the dead. The apostles preaching of of the gospel in the New Testament always is preached with a a statement about the resurrection. And it really is important. It is such a unique distinction of your hope in Jesus Christ because your hope is in eternal life. And eternal life is a real hope because the Lord Jesus left the grave. It is a vital component of of our understanding of the gospel is this resurrection of Jesus and I I feel I've said this before but I've read a couple small books on on the resurrection just in terms of secular people wanting to prove Christians to be fools and wrong and they they, they go at it attempting to disprove the resurrection and uh, a little article like that, a little book like that, is a great encouragement to you and I as we realize that this particular part of life you live in right now is temporary. It is temporary. And one of your proofs of that, the way you preach to your own heart of how temporary this is, is you, you remind yourself of the resurrection. You take your... Uh, your interlocutor you are speaking the gospel to and you tell them, are you ready to meet the beginning of the next life? Because you will die and you will need to be standing before God in Christ or you will not live forever. The Lord Jesus is the conqueror of death. Here in Romans 4, where studying Abraham for these last weeks because Abraham is the chiefest example that that Paul brought forth for you and I to consider as he has begun this teaching and this explanation of what it means to be justified. And Romans chapter 4 is, is a very, very... Uh, high place in the gospel in terms of teaching us what justification by faith means and the way it has been shown to us so far is by Abraham and also by David if you recall we 
we looked at some of the statements of David uh, probably three or four weeks ago thinking about this. So we're going to pick up here with, with Abraham again today. And if you take notes, you might write down the phrase believing in his presence. I've found that this is a really important theme in the section we're going to be studying here today, believing in his presence. I'm going to pick up here in verse 14, chapter 4 and verse 14, to get back into the context of uh, what Paul is speaking about. And, and as we read Paul, remind yourself that Paul isn't just an, an, an academic Christian. He is actually inspired by God. His, his pen is God's pen. And it's so important for you and I to realize that the the only bridge between this world and the other world is by God's Spirit who who brings us into a, a, a word of understanding that cannot be had in any other way. The Word of God is a supernatural thing. God's Spirit writes the Word by these apostles. And so... Don't read it like you read other books. It's not like other books. Let's read from verse 14. He says, If those who are of the law are heirs, and so that would be an inheritor with Abraham, receiving the promises with Abraham. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, just to remind you, if you're not remembering this, he is contrasting consistently now for paragraphs, many paragraphs, the difference between your confidence in the law to make your standing something before God, your not lying. You're in in Paul's context, of course, he's looking at all of the law that go around uh, the revealed law by Moses, beginning with the Ten Commandments and then all the permutations and all of the sacrificial laws come about with that. He said, if if the promise of salvation and eternal life comes about by law, then that means the promise by faith has been nullified. If it comes about by law, then the promise meant nothing. This is what he's saying so far. Because in verse 15 he says, the law brings about wrath. Is the law good or bad? Question for the people in the audience. Is the law good or bad? Well, the law is good. The law is always good, but it brings about wrath. Why? Why does the law bring wrath for you? Why? Because you can't keep it. You can't keep it. No matter what you think about your own righteousness, you are not a thing that by your nature keeps this law. What do you do instead of law? Sin. Sin is a synonym for wrath here in verse 15, isn't it? Wrath. 
You can look at the law and go, man, that's a good law. People shouldn't lie. People shouldn't use God's name in vain blasphemy. That's that's a bad thing. So I like that law. You, you might admire and approve of the law and then within moments find in your own mouth and your own heart breaking that same law. All the law does is show you how much wrath you rightfully deserve before a holy God. So in a way, maybe you hate the law because it exposes you for the the derelicted lawbreaker that you are. It does expose you, but another way you love it because it magnifies the the greatness and the holiness of God. It, it, It magnifies the perfections of God. And when we see them, especially in isolation, when we see them and and not shining on us a whole lot, we really do admire them. We see them beautiful and, and wonderful. But the law brings about wrath, he says, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law magnifies all of your transgressions. Paul says, until the law came, I didn't know what coveting was. But then it came, and oh my word, wow, what a coveter I am. What a coveter I am. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, flowing in the thought from verse 14, if it is of faith, that it might be according to grace. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. We're going to work on this contrast here. That the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 4 3, Romans chapter 4 and verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. This phrase of Abraham believing and then being counted righteous is, is like the, the hinge pin of of most of the gospel conversation that we've been having in the book of Romans. Abraham believed and it's counted to him as righteousness, but you who knew the law, Jews in particular who know the law, the the law knowers are like, wait a minute, the law is how we are made right before God. The law is the, the, the proof of our right standing before God. And so this is why so much discussion is revolving around the question of the law. And this quotation, Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness, is the quote out of Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to go back into Genesis here even more in Genesis 17. In a second, we're going to look at what did Abraham believe and how is this different than the law. When he believed... When he believed in Genesis chapter 15, you already know, I think you know, Romans asked this question about circumcision. It says, when he believed, was he circumcised or not? And this is a really important question because he wasn't circumcised yet. Which means the main ritual truth about a Jew that means they're the people of God and they've done what's right before God is the circumcision of their males that they learned from Abraham, who is the father of all the Jews, right? 
But he believed and he was credited with righteousness before that happened. So you don't have to be a, a, a scholar to realize justification came without the main Jewish ritual. Justification came without that rule. Then when did the law of Moses come? Because that's kind of the next part of this argument. When, when was he justified? Where was the law of Moses? Another 430 years down the road. He was justified with no circumcision. He was justified with no law. What does that leave the poor Jew? What does that mean, the, the law-dependent man? What does that leave him with? You mean Abraham was justified by believing the promise? Is that it? But that's all there was. There was God's word and promise to Abraham. And this is the basis and the ground of his justification. That's, in a nutshell, how we have arrived to where we were. Justification was never according to the law. Never according to kept works. So, these all uphold, these all bear out the truth that was made back in 328. <clears throat> he made this statement, and, and these are all arguments supporting its truthfulness. Romans 328 said, Therefore we conclude a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. He said that back in chapter 3, we're well into chapter 4, but he's still proving it. This is the hinge pin of the gospel. And I, I, I know I've said it a couple, two, three times now. You don't know enough about justification yet. You don't understand it yet. The attacks on justification in, in, in most of the academic places of, of Christians in the world today are still fighting over justification. And how what we think the Bible says about justification. And, and the greatest error today says you are justified by faith and you get into heaven by your works. Many Protestant Christians teach that today. Tons of Protestant Christians teach that today. And the reason this is a problem is not because of an academic victory or loss. This is not about academics. This isn't about what you know over what somebody else is going to know. This is about heaven and hell. This is about the preservation of the gospel. Christians must understand what the New Testament teaches about justification. You must understand it so that your own heart and mind is built on a saving foundation of faith. It must be academically proclaimed and explained and defended, but it is a real thing. Faith is the thing that we must have in Christ or we cannot be saved. So look at 4.16 with me. Look at 4.16. We had just read a moment ago um, verse 16 already, but read it with me again. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It is of faith. Salvation is of faith. Justification is of faith, and it might be by grace. 
Go ahead and flip in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll see a familiar verse about grace that is mentioned there. Ephesians chapter 2, some of you can say from some memory, maybe it is by grace. You have been saved through faith in this, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. If it's by grace, then it's not by works. If it's by grace, then there is no boasting. If it is by grace, there is no works. Saving faith is of grace. Saving faith is a gift. When you receive a gift, did you have it before you received it? No. And you, even if you already had one, let's say somebody gave you a new phone for a gift. Did you have it before you received it? No. The things you receive from God, you never had before. Salvation is a gift. Faith is a gift. One of the mysteries of conversion to so many thousands of people is the fact that God gives a person faith. You don't go get it. You can't make it up. It is a supernatural reality when you believe in the gospel. It comes from the new birth. You didn't have it until you received it, and then it was yours as a gift from God. It was impossible for you to get yourself. Salvation is impossible for you to get yourself. Why? Because you're a sinner. Because your heart is hard. Because you do not believe. Because you are depraved in your sin until the gift of faith is given. And you hear and see with a sympathetic and a humble and believing heart and you believe in the proclamation of the gospel. It was impossible for you to get yourself because it was too valuable. You could never buy it. What did it cost to secure the redemption of a sinner? What is the cost of it? Is it something you have in your savings account? Is it something you have in your 401k? Your own life isn't enough to save you. Do you realize that? Your own life is the only thing you could give for your sin. You give your life and you don't have eternal life if that's all you have. The wage of sin is death. Sinners can bring death, but that does not give them eternal life. Redemption and salvation costs too much and no man has what it costs. You cannot have it. It is a gift of God. You don't know where to get it. You don't know how to have it until you have heard the proclamation of the gospel. It is a miraculous gift. And it is of faith, he says, that it may be by grace. And we covered that two weeks ago. I really want you to understand this point. It is by faith that it may be by grace. It's the only way you can have it. And the reason that this is so, and, and this is implied in what we've read here, the reason it must be like this is because God's grace is only manifest like this. God's grace is a thing. It's a thing for you and I to know, and it's a thing for you and I to exalt and even to uh, 
praise. God's grace is a certain thing and it secures the salvation of sinners by faith. And when a person properly understands salvation and faith and the grace of God, he realizes, I did not do one thing that made my heart sympathetic to the gospel. God made my heart bend to the gospel. God made my hard mind soft to the proclamation of the gospel and I believe it. Why do I believe it? Why? Because I didn't believe it a week ago or I didn't believe it a year ago. Now I want to know more of it and I want to walk in it. How did that happen? That is a supernatural miracle. You cannot have it or get it. Grace is such that when you understand the terms of the gospel, you are the object of a supernatural work of God. The same way that the light or the planet is spoken into existence is the reality of your belief in the Savior. The only explanation is the grace of God. God's grace is on the stage when we are talking about what true gospel faith is. God's grace is to be praised and glorified, not your intelligence, not your humility. Not your devotion. No Christian virtue. God's grace is what is on the stage. It's a jewel. It's it's something to be admired and, and magnified. The grace of God in salvation. This pairing of grace and faith go together. They just by what we've read in Paul's explanation of it, grace and faith go together. And this is to make the promise sure. It must be like this, he says. And this is how it is made sure. The jewel, the, the, the glory, the beauty of the grace of God is on display in this way. So that the promise can be made sure. It is of faith that it might be according to grace, is what we are reading here in verse 16. So that the promise might be sure. Do you understand why this makes the promise sure? I already said this two weeks ago. Do you understand why this makes the promise sure? What does it have to do with you? Zero. Do you believe? Where did it come from? God? What does it have to do with you? Well, if God has planted faith in your heart and mind and, and you're believing, what does it have to do with you? God put faith in you. You believe. Why do you know it's sure? Why does this guarantee its, its sureness? Why does this give you assurance and hope? It's not contingent on you. It's not contingent on your stumble. It's not contingent on your sin. What is it contingent on? Your conversion, your faith, your hope in Christ. Where does all of that come from? It comes from God's sovereign work, his, his sovereign planting of faith. In the believer who has learned to see the Christ in a certain way and learned to understand the gospel in a certain way, this makes it sure. Paul says this makes it sure. You, you believe in the one promising. You believe in the promises promised. That's what makes it sure, not you. That's why it's sure. 
It's based on the character and in the foundation of God. What if it was dependent on your ability? What if it was dependent on your ability to stay faithful to God? What kind of sureness would you have? You wouldn't have any sureness. Because you'd be faithful right now, this minute, an hour and a half from now, you will not be. It's a glorious, wonderful, amazing truth that God has made it this way. It is by faith so that it may be sure. If you look at verse 17 with me, we're going to learn a little bit more about how faith works here. The end of the end of verse 16 says that the promise is also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did who contrary to hope and hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. We are put into Abraham's perspective here as we're studying this idea of justification and Abraham's faith. We are put into the shoes of Abraham again as I'm just going to try to summarize. As one who heard while in the presence of God, this is the picture we've been given here, Abraham is in the presence of God. He, his, his knowledge of his, his, his concept of who God is is the God who gives life to the dead and the God who calls things that do not exist as though they do exist. So there's some basic premises about the nature and the person of God. So Abraham believes in the presence of him who has these attributes, this God. We see something really very interesting about what faith is, or more importantly, what saving faith is. It's not not the comprehension of truth claims. It's it's not that he understands the sentences and the words, but in the wisdom of the Spirit, we're told here that he heard these things in the presence of him who is like this, which I believe brings us a step closer into the reality of the person of God who Abraham knew while he is hearing this. In other words, there are truth claims on the table. There are words that are, God doesn't have a mouth, I almost said, that are coming out of God's mouth. There are words that Abraham knows are God's words to him. But not only that, Abraham knows the God who is speaking the words to him. There is an intimate understanding of who is making these claims and who is saying these words. The person of God who had a couple of interesting attributes here, gives life to the dead, calls things that do not exist as though they do. 
So his being in the presence of the one who is saying these things is a major component of what it means to have saving faith. Who said the things you believe? Who has the power to support the things that you said you have heard and you believe about the gospel? This is what I mean by this. It is a person who has said words to Abraham. Abraham was 99 years old in Genesis chapter 17. Go to Genesis chapter 17. We'll be back in Romans here in a moment. Genesis is a pretty easy book in the Bible to find. It's the very, very first one. Genesis chapter 17 and then verse I wrote down that's going to be Romans let me go back here for a second So in uh, what we just read in in 4.17, I have made you a father of many nations. That's what it said back there. Go all the way back to uh, Genesis 17.5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I made you a father of many nations. Do you, do you know anybody who's a father of a nation? Is your grandfather the father of a nation? Your dad, your brother? What would that mean if one of your relatives was the father of a nation? Do you know anybody like that? No, I, I don't think any of you do. I was thinking about this. Being the father of a nation is a very rare Distinction over the history of all of, of mankind. But add to that or increase that. He's told that he would be the father of many nations. That, that's just unnatural. That's, uh, that's a very, very uncommon uh, distinction. Unnatural as in supernatural. For God to say to a man... You will be the father of many nations is an astonishing promise. It is truly, truly a remarkable promise. Not only that, when when Abraham hears this here in Genesis 17, I told you he's 99. How many kids did he have already? He actually had one because he slept with his wife's maid. And they had a child by her. So he has a kid who is called the child of the flesh in the book of Galatians. We'll get there eventually. He doesn't have any children by Sarah. Why? She can't have children. She's barren. God loves making promises that cannot be conceived in the natural way. This is... Often how the Lord works. 
he, he puts you in a situation where you have no choice but to trust in his supernatural intervention to solve the problem. They had no kids of their own, Abraham and Sarah. She's barren. He's 99. Verse 4 and 17, which we haven't read yet. God says, I'll make my covenant between me and will multiply you exceedingly. Okay? The promise that is made to Abraham that we've been reading about in Romans 4 is, is the God that calls things to exist that are not. He, he is the God who makes the dead to live. My covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations, he says in verse 6. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come forth from you. So Abraham is in the presence of him who speaks. We don't know all the dynamics of that, but Abraham knows God is speaking to him. And these are the terms that are being spoken to him. Verse 17, Abraham said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, have a child? We are not reading Abraham doubting here. You would be inclined to think you're reading him doubting, but he's not because we know already Abraham believed God and is credited to him for righteousness. What is he doing? He's marveling here. He's saying, well, a guy who's 100 have a kid. Wow. What's that going to be like? Can, can a man actually have a kid? And then not only that, nations? My, my kid and kids are going to become nations? That is amazing. I don't believe we, for a minute that we're reading him doubting here. We're reading him marveling. Back in Romans 4, let's, let's assess these words in this conversation between Abraham and God. Verse 4, um, chapter 4, verse 17, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. New King James says, in the presence of him whom he believed. King James says, before him in whom he believed. He believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. So Abraham and Sarah, they are the ones who are effectively dead. The, the introduction of Abraham's knowledge of who God is and life and death. He, Abraham is the one who is dead. Abraham can't have kids. His wife can't have kids. There is no life coming from them. Paul bears this out for us. Children don't come from Abraham and Sarah in the natural world. So what does Abraham believe? Abraham believes the one speaking. Abraham believes the terms of what's promised. Children, offspring, nations, in the presence of the one who is speaking to him. In other words, he knows the power and the ability of the living God who promises. The God who speaks to him is not a theory. Abraham is there with him in his presence and he understands the objective Words and promises coming from the person of God. And, and this is an important thing for 
me to try to communicate to you. Your understanding of gospel terms are similar to Abraham's. Verse 18 said, contrary to hope he believes. Goes on to say in verse 19, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, which was now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He was not weak and wavering. Your conception of God's promises to you are related. They're, They're in these promises made to Abraham. Yours and mine are a little more particular. They've been shared with us in Romans so far. What I wanted to ask you just for a second before we dive back into verse 19 to 22 is, is is your pondering on the gospel claim something that you conceive of in the presence of God? In other words, is it something between you and God? Is your knowledge of you and your sinfulness and your need of a Savior something between you and God? Is is God's holiness and your sinfulness something you know in your own heart, in your own mind? See, Abraham, in the presence of God, knows this because he knows who he's with. He knows the the power and and the authority of the one he's with. This is something he perceives in the presence of God as you're understanding the gospel the same sort of thing. Not being weak in faith, it said there in verse 19 again, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was 100 years old, he didn't think about his inability and he didn't think about Sarah's inability. Instead, from verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was counted to him for righteousness. Faith's stability, faith's soundness, is in the person who has made the promise. In other words, your knowledge of the person who's promised, your confidence in the strength of the one who has spoken is the stability of faith. This is Abraham's stability and the solidness of his faith. And this faith is actually strengthened, giving glory to God. I want to talk about that with you for a second. What is wavering here called? Did you notice what's wavering? It's unbelief. Wavering is unbelief. Elijah. Elijah once chastised the people of Israel. And he asked them about their wavering in uh, 1 Kings chapter 18. The people of the northern kingdom, they knew all the words of God. They knew all the prophets of God. They knew all of the precepts of right and wrong and true and false. And Elijah was one prophet 
who opposed them. He he was saying, you are following the false god of Baal. And to the man, they, they were angry at him. They challenged him. I believe much of this was because it was politically incorrect to stand with Elijah. Who who was the main bad guy in Elijah's day? Where the where the prophets of Baal were so powerful? 450 prophets of Baal. Who was the bad guy? Yeah, Ahab and Jezebel. Very 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 wicked people. What would it mean if you took your stand against Jezebel? What would it mean if you took your stand against the most popular politician in your county or in your state or in your nation? What does that what does that mean when you stand against them? It means everybody is mad at you. It means you might lose your job. It means you might be killed. So this is the world where Elijah ministers in 1 Kings 18.21 says, Elijah came to all the people and he said, how long will you falter or how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you go between believing and unbelieving? How long will you go in and out and in and out? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people wouldn't say a word. Have you ever been in a situation where there is a clear Truth claim on the line. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus or do you not believe in the Lord Jesus? Take your stand with Jesus or take your stand with whatever the case may be. And what does it mean when nobody will talk? What does it mean when they won't speak? They're afraid to pick a side. They're afraid to take a stand because they know if they they take a stand, it's going to cost them. It's going to cost them something. What would it mean for Abraham to have weak faith? He wasn't weak in faith. What would it have meant if he had weak faith? It it might mean that he remembered all the words and the promises of God. But he would maybe not think God had the power to keep those words. Or maybe it would mean that he didn't want to stand where you stand. Because it would make him unpopular. It would hurt his situation. But he didn't waver, it says. He actually remained strong in his faith. Verse 21 said, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Why did Abraham have this great Persuasion. Why did he have this great confidence? You remember a passage in Job, Job 42? I'm going to read you this. You'll remember it when I read it to you. Job 42, 5 and 6. Job knew so much about the Lord, didn't he? Job said at the end of the conversation with his friends and then at the end of... uh, being actually confronted by the Lord, Job said, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What was different at the end of the life of Job? 
Did Job know a lot about God in the early parts of this amazing book? He did. He knew so much about the holiness and the greatness of God. What changed? I, I think what we see here in the, in the end of this is Job actually being in the presence of the Lord. We see this conviction of God's holiness and God's power that he now understands God in a way he did not understand him. Let me read it to you again. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Back here in Romans 4.21, Abraham says he's fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham's righteousness is reckoned to him as a man who is in the presence of God and hearing the claims of God, hearing the promises of God and believing him because he's fully convinced of the power of God to do what he said he's going to do. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Look at Romans 3, and let's close. Romans 3 and verse 23. Listen carefully. I know you've been listening now for a while. Abraham's words and Abraham's promises do tie into ours, and, and Romans helps us get that. But listen to what it said here in verse 23. It said, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. When we read these words, these are a complicated promise that is made to a person. Your sinfulness, God's righteousness, God's paying a price of redemption. Early in the Sunday school this morning, we're talking about the blood of Christ, which is more costly than gold or silver. When we read these terms in, in Romans chapter 3, these terms of, of your state as a sinner, God's righteousness, God's power and authority to redeem and justify, these are claims and terms of a promise. Have you ever perceived these words and terms as something truly between you and the Creator? Something between you and the judge? Is this something you understand that explains your condition as a man and your hope of eternal life or not? You understand that the creator and the judge is the one who looks at you and knows all of your secret sins? Who knows the day you're going to die? Who knows what your day of judgment looks like? Do you realize that your life and your soul is in the hands of this one who speaks these terms we read here in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned. You have sinned. You'll sin today. 
What is the basis of your hope of justification? Is your understanding of this something you truly perceive is between you and the judge? See, Abraham's believing was hearing and believing in the presence of him who gives life to the dead, who calls things into existence that never did exist. I don't know how to help you realize that it is the maker of men. The maker of everything is the one who who puts these terms before you supernaturally by the Spirit through the prophet who is the Apostle Paul here. He, He expresses these words to you. And you, in your heart and mind, before this judge must realize that your day of reckoning is around the corner. All of you will die sooner than you think. And then your time is up. Your your chance to be at peace with the judge is gone. So I want to exhort you. I I want to remind you that these words are to prepare you to be at peace with the judge. There is one who has taken the penalty for sinners, and you know who that is. You know that Christ has taken the death and shed his blood to pay the price for sinners, to redeem sinners, and to give you and I hope of eternal life. We'll talk more about how it is that glorifying him is is how we grow in faith and how we become strong in faith. But you and I are people who must know these terms and these words that the Creator and Judge has spoken to you. That your faith is in Him and in His ability and in His reliability as the speaker of these things. Your faith is that. Your faith is the person who has become your righteousness by faith. This is between you and the judge. And all I can do is tell you about these words and about that person and point you to him and and exhort you to put your faith and trust in him. So I hope you will. I hope you do. And I hope this is a great uh, time of of thanksgiving and, and true hope in Christ. Let's pray for just a moment together. Lord God, we praise you for your word that explains the terms of our guilt and the offer of hope and forgiveness. We thank you that Abraham is one such man who who understood who the judge and, and the authority and the promiser is. Oh, Lord God, how we pray for your help. Strengthen us and, and give us perseverance, we pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the offer and the hope of eternal life. Go with these men and women, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.